practical Kenny County Council Arts Office and Creative Ireland. This is The Art Show on KCLR with Hugo Jealous. Well, surprise, surprise, it's not you, good judge. It's Ulani Voldanik with you this evening. I hit the wrong sting there. Do excuse me. Good evening and welcome along to the Arts Show. Coming up on this evening's show, we're going to hear from Lisa Fingleton, a really interesting artist, filmmaker and writer who has spent years finding connections between farming, food and art. We'll also have the first of our book clubs where we'll be chatting about Liz Nugent's Strange Sally Diamond. So don't forget to join us for that one. And as one of our book club members happens to be the very talented local local poet Marissa Sheehan. We'll have to see if we can get a poem from her while we have her all to come before seven o'clock this evening. So straight down to business with our artist in profile segment. This week we hear part two of Brendan Casey's profile. Here Brendan, the author of She That Lays Silent Like Upon Our Shore, tells us what it's like to be an artist in Kilkenny. He talks about the role of the arts office and he also goes through some other key points in his artistic career. Here he is. It's like to be an artist in Kilkenny, I, I guess, uh, you know, I mean, that sort of depends. I mean, it, it, on well, both, you know, what, what discipline you're working within and whether you're working in Kilkenny or, or whether you live rurally, but also, I guess, on, you know, the particularities of, of your personality and your particular circumstances. Uh, but certainly, uh, I guess, as far for, for me and working as rurally as an unknown writer, um, you know, and certainly in helping to bridge the sort of gap between between that and also, you know, the the wider Dublin centric um, thing in general. Um, the involvement with the Kilkenny Arts Office was extremely important in helping bridge those gaps. And um, you know, I one of the one of the very early kind of um, helps was. Um, uh, um, mentorship that I did with Declan Mead of the Stinging Fly, which um, anyone who's remotely involved in the or aware of the literary scene in in Ireland will have come across the Stinging Fly at some stage, no doubt. I mean, they're they're a very well respected uh, independent publisher. Um, so anyway, through the arts office, Cooking Arts Office, I was um, I was able to. You know, a veil of a mentorship with Declan Mead, which I mean, it was it really only consisted of, of a few meetings, but um, was extremely important, and uh, I was quite surprised to have to sort of be able to avail of that as a completely unknown writer who was literally writing in a room, and apart from maybe one very good friend, you know, there was there was really no um, awareness of, of you know of me writing at all. Um, so that was great, and you know that that sort of led on to other things, of course, as these things do. The sort of the little bit of a snowball effect, um, you know, from that. I, so Declan in, um, encouraged me to apply for the Stinging Flow Fiction Workshop, which is an extremely intensive six-month um, kind of writing workshop. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's great to be able to avail of those things locally, and and they're extremely important. And yeah, really help bridge that gap between you know working you know as as an artist in isolation to sort of getting your work um, out there and getting the ball rolling. You know, there was other things as well. I mean, uh, there was uh, an illustrator work of mine was uh, I received funding for that, which allowed me to continue working on that, and that involved a, as I said an illustrator, Stephen Allen, 
who is, is a local artist and was doing great work on that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's it's great that in Kilkenny there are, whether you are rural or whether you are, you know, an urban writer, that there are these opportunities uh, that are available to you. It may not be the path that you want to take, but, I mean, it's, it's extremely hard to get anywhere without support. So as to... Uh, key points in my career as an artist I, I mean definitely you know that mentorship with Declan was was an early one um, another one actually one that I'm doing now is a, is a mentorship with uh, Dermot Bolger and that's uh, just to you know to get some advice and to bounce ideas off and maybe problems that I'm having with the novel that I'm currently working on so that was also a mentorship that was it's sort of devised in conjunction between uh the arts office in Kilkenny and the writer center in Dublin. So that was great uh, as well, which is something that I'm, I'm currently involved in. Um, but certainly a key point is that I, um, a few years ago, I, in 2018, 19, I did an, uh, an MA in creative writing at UCD and, uh, was lucky enough to be doing, uh, my thesis, uh, or having Anne Enright as my thesis supervisor. And that thesis was working on my novel uh, that's just been published, She That Lay, um, as a work in progress. So, I mean, it was not only great to to, to meet Anne and a writer of, of that caliber, of course, and maybe talk about elements of her writing process and my own, but, um, you know, ultimately this it really led to the publication of my book. Um, Anne forwarded on an extract of the novel to her agent um, or her agency in London, which is RCW. Um, and that led to sort of preliminary informal talks with one of the agents there, Matthew Turner, who is my current agent, is my agent now. That really introduced me to, 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 to that. And um, the extract was, um, an extract of the novel was long listed for the Deborah Rogers Foundation Award, which is an award that... Um, it's kind is connected to that agency really, and Deborah Rogers was a founder of RCW, and so anyway, you know, being long listed for that just sort of solidified that relationship to some extent, and we began working on it, um, and I got some really great advice um, from from the agent, and ultimately led to the publication of the book, um, and so obviously in my acknowledgements of the book, I, I thanked Dan Enright and. Uh, which I was very grateful, who I was very grateful to. And, you know, it's really no exaggeration to say that, I mean, she was directly involved and responsible for for the for ultimately the book being published. So that was, you know, without a doubt, a very central and uh, key moment in, in the road to publication. You're very welcome back. 083-306-9696 is our number, by the way, if you want to get in on any of our conversations this evening or if you want to tell us about something arty that's coming up around your way. Now, Bookville is just one of those things that's coming up. It's a festival brought to us by Kilkenny Arts Office and Kilkenny Libraries. It's happening from the 12th to the 18th of October and it features some wonderful children's authors and illustrators. There's a fabulous programme. It's videos, workshops, both in person and via Zoom. There's an award-winning comedy show and it also includes The Sandwich Project, an exhibition by artist, filmmaker, writer and grower Lisa Fingleton. The Sandwich Story promises to take us on a visual journey of one woman's quest to find out where do sandwiches really come from. Intrigued? Well, I surely was. So earlier on, I caught up with Lisa to hear more and started by asking her from where the idea came. 
So a couple of years ago, I was installing a solo exhibition in Dundalk and it was about 10 o'clock when I came out of the gallery and the only place I could get through that night was in a petrol station. So, and the only thing that was for sale was a, a BLT sandwich, so a bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwich. And then I went back to the, the place I was staying, the bed and breakfast, and I made a cup of tea. And when I sat down to eat the sandwich, I noticed a huge amount of ingredients on the back of the package. So how many ingredients, let me just ask you, how many ingredients do you think would be on the back of a package of a BLT sandwich? Well, a few more than three, I guess, if we're taking the bacon, lettuce, tomato and the bread and maybe a bit of mayonnaise. Seven. Seven. Yeah, it's, it's a hell of a lot more than that. There's 43 ingredients in it. Oh, my goodness. What on earth was in it? I know. Half the things, I really couldn't tell you what they are in reality. You know, there's thymine and guar gum and all these different preservatives sticking things together. But just incredible amount of preservatives and and just different ingredients from all over the world. So it made me think about, you know, gosh, where is this wheat coming from? Because in Ireland, most of our wheat from human consumption, almost all of our pizza bread, all, all our pizza bases and all our bread comes from imported wheat. So I was wondering, was that sprayed? Where did that come from? Um, you know, where did the tomatoes come from? Probably it was it was winter, so they must have come from some part of maybe Africa or South Southern Europe. And um, just just really made me think about the politics of food, I suppose, where did food come from and who was making this food? And, you know, it's not a question we tend to ask ourselves very often, but I know that a lot of your art actually is engaged with that, the relationship and the connections between art and food and farming and all of that. So this is only one of a number of projects that you've done with that connection in mind. It's funny because, I mean, I grew up in, in Stradbally, not not all that far from Kilkenny, and I grew up in a farm and... And then I was always interested in art, but I never thought that the two things would come together, that I could actually be kind of an artist farmer, you know, or an artist, an organic grower. So it's really, really lovely the way they feed each other, literally. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I spent um, the last, like, one and a half, two years working with farmers in Dingle, looking at, um, like, climate change and biodiversity loss and how farmers can diversify in the face of the big crisis we're, we're, we're facing. And I'm, I've just recently been at the Museum of Modern Art where we were showing a film that we made. And uh, and last year, we did a huge 100-foot drawing at the National Ploughing Championship, uh, literally exploring with hundreds of farmers their ideas around climate action. That was then installed. Um, the OPW brought it to the Museum of Modern Art, and it was shown there. So it's, it's, it's really great to see institutions like Museum of Modern Art um, and the Crawford Gallery recently purchased that sandwich project drawing that I was telling you about for the National Collection. So it's great to see the interest in food, farming and art and how the three things are kind of overlapping. A couple of things came to mind as you were speaking there. The first was, so your your sandwich story ended up being a, a painting, is that correct, or a drawing? Yeah, well, it was funny. The next day I ended up doing workshops with kids um, as part of, like young children, as part of the exhibition. And I said to them, would you be happy to draw this with me? Because I have this idea about the sandwich. So we actually spent the day drawing journeys of different sandwiches. And we had such a ball. I mean, it was just, of course, their imagination. And and oftentimes, you know, children don't necessarily make the connections between, you know, animals and food. And so we had loads of really interesting conversations. And then after that, um, Visual, we're having, Visual and Carla were having a big exhibition about food and farming. And I suggested to them, listen, what about if I drew this, if I drew this out properly for you? So they actually um, said, yeah, we'll work away. And we made a massive big uh, print of the drawing for the visual gallery. And I also drew an original drawing for them. And then um, then the Crawford Art Gallery last summer asked me to do 
think it was 10 metres. It was quite a large drawing live in the gallery using scaffolding. And um, and I drew the sandwich project again, but I was able to incorporate newer things. So I was able to talk about, you know, the war in Ukraine and how that's impacting in terms of the food systems as well. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, so it's, it's amazing how one little idea, you know, I always say that to well, children, adult, adults, when I'm working to them, never underestimate the power of an idea because you just never know where it's going to take you. It's phenomenal. And like a very mundane thing, if you will, really turned into something so interesting and not just the aesthetic of a lovely piece of art, but also what it contributes to a really meaningful conversation is is very, very worthwhile as well. Your ploughing championship project, so that was the future is in the field. So take yeah. me back, there, was, was the purpose of the ploughing event to get ideas from the farmers? Is that the stage it was at in 2022 when you were at the ploughing or was it a little bit further along by then? Well, what, what happened was, I suppose, we were working very closely with Creative Ireland. We had 10 half-farm families in Dingle. We had started, so they had all seen my sandwich project, and then we had started in Dingle to look at the 10 farm families coming up with their ideas. So I did a big drawing for them called A Creative Imagining, and that was after six months of working with the farmers. We sat around the kitchen table in this school, and we started drawing the future. So that'll, that's that's on display in, in Bookville. Um, so that's like the ideas that farmers had in Dingle. And then Creative Ireland saw this and they were like, well, what about doing it 100 foot long with hundreds of farmers in the ploughing championship to see what people think? So originally you can imagine like some of the farmers were like, oh, for goodness sake, what, what are you asking us this for? Mm-hmm. And some of them, but then people started like taking it really serious and they were like, well, look, you need to get rid of the red tape. You know, for years we've been told to get rid of ditches. We've been told to cut everything down. And now you're asking us to do a complete U-turn and and not cut our ditches or leave space for nature. So once I started drawing these up, some of the, the negative things that people were saying, they were like, oh, wow, she's serious. She actually wants to hear our opinions. So I kept drawing for three solid days, and uh, and the farmers from Dingley came and helped me, helped me with that. And we drew all their ideas. And there was a lot about, you know, making connections between between restaurants and food that people are eating and the field. And people felt that that disconnection is getting you know, worse, that people are more and more disconnected from their food. And people felt really strongly that that needs to be brought back, that we need to eat more local food. We need to know our butchers. We need to know our local restaurants, you know, all that kind of thing. And so what ended up in the drawing? Like, can you give me a couple of examples of, of what you actually put on, on, on the um, the finished product? Well, the first ones were that idea of the hula hoops. There was, I had little hoops and the farmers jumping through the hoops. Um, the most popular drawing by far was one of the, a dairy farmer from Cork said to me, he was only in his 20s, he said, I'm going to sell the farm and go to Ibiza. And I had him <laughs> sitting on a deck chair with a, with a pint of beer um, and all of the young people photographed that. <laughs> so that really told me something that even though he said it kind of as a joke, people took it really seriously because so many young people now, especially young farmers, are so much in debt. You know, they've been taught this model of expand, 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 grow your herd, um, which is sort of the opposite of what we need to be doing now in terms of the climate crisis. And they're feeling under fierce pressure. You know, they've invested all this and they're probably in debt for many, many years to come. So so the young people really related to that. But there was also all sorts of um, ideas around how do we generate energy on farms, looking at harnessing solar, um, using your fields, you know, maybe anaerobic digestion. There was lots of drawings about the importance of growing your own food, lots of things about, you know, people like we're only a generation or two from growing our own food and feeding ourselves. So lots of people were saying, gosh, we really need to learn from the generations who knew how to do this. Yes, we before to, we they're gone. We need to remember the skills that we had. Absolutely. 
And I wonder as well, was was there a lot of anger? Because I do think that farmers have come in for a huge amount of criticism uh, for, for a number of years, but I think it's kind of, it's it's gone up a notch recently. So when you were doing that project, was there anger on the part of farmers? I know you mentioned the red tape and the hoops, but are they feeling, you know, a little bit, I suppose, hard done by in that whole climate conversation? I didn't get the brunt of anger, certainly when I was there, because um, Creative Ireland were explaining to people that, you know, that I am a farmer, I am a grower and I'm also an artist. So and and I think people could see that from the drawings I started with, which was really expressing not so much their anger but their absolute frustration. I mean, it is so frustrating to be asked to be asked at one point, frustrating to be asked at one point to, for example, grow multi-species swords, which will help biodiversity, but at the same time, the same government policy is telling you you have to spray those fields in order for these seeds to grow, and these seeds are all imported. This is the current government policy. So there's a lot of frustration that there's so many people trying to do the right thing in terms of climate change and biodiversity but a lot of the policies are contradictory yes it's, so it's... you 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 plant this seed you know and then and then within you have to spray to do it so i think you know a lot of farmers are turning to organics they are turning to you know really clean ways of growing food because they feel like well this is this is the future and this is what we need to do so you can feel that because you're very much, I suppose, at the coalface of this. And I, the other thing that occurred to me there when you were speaking, Lisa, was which came first? The I know you grew up on a farm, but like, did your interest in, I suppose, a new way of farming or did your art come come first? Was it your social voice in for, forming your art or was it your artistic endeavours that kind of got you more interested in, in that side of farming? Well, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I was I was always both because I grew up on a farm and I was always drawing. So. <laughs> I don't know which I don't know which came first, but I suppose I probably had a very unusual upbringing that my parents are extremely resourceful and extremely creative. Like my mom used to make a lot of our toys and our dresses. My dad grew all of our food, so it's really hard to see from because from when I was a baby, literally, I was probably once I could eat, I was eating from the garden and from the farm. So not many people have the privilege of that, you know. Mm. That they, I just assumed that was normal. I assumed that everybody literally you know, had apples on their trees outside their door and had pears and my dad even grows peaches and nectarines. He's an amazing person. So when um, you say all so, the food, did you make butter? Did you make, I mean, are we going down to that level of... of um, oh, my grandmother, my grandmother would have made butter. My And she only lived up the road. We had, My grandmother had chicken, so we had eggs. Um, yeah, we had, and all the meat was from the farm. Um, all the fruit was, I'm not saying we were 12 months of the year, but certainly as a child, mm. my memory is of, of growing what we eat. And do you still do that? Have you time amongst all the other things you're doing, Lisa? Well, I, my partner would say that I, I, I'm not putting enough time into it that she's landed with those jobs. Okay. But, but, you know, we do, we do. We grow we grow a lot of food for ourselves and we grow a lot, of, a lot of food for the community as well. Organic farming would have a reputation for being quite time-consuming. So you seem to, to pack a lot in nonetheless. I mean, the thing is, organic farming is, until 50 years ago, that's how everybody farmed. We forget that. We had 8 million people on the island of Ireland before the famine and everybody was organic because everybody was growing without chemicals. Chemicals only came into farming after the Second World War. Um, they had uh, People say they, they, the story was they had an excess of all these chemicals after the war. They produced all these chemicals and needed something to do with it. So they thought, well, we'll kill insects and maybe, you know, um, use them to grow food. So it's a very new thing, actually, all of this petrochemicals using oils. 
to actually um, to, to, to fertilize fields and, and grow food. So yes, we, we were we were all organic, but I suppose we weren't in this time poor. You know, now people are under fierce pressure because of the, the capitalist systems we live in, you know, and, and, and people not having security of tenure in their homes, they're having to work maybe multiple jobs to keep a home over their a roof over their heads or to pay a mortgage. And and time is really the isn't it really like the the, the best currency that we have today and that's been taken from a lot of people so people don't have the privilege or the time to grow their own food absolutely but I suppose like I don't think we forget that that we were farming organically but I think we would associate it with quite a lot of hardship like being out physically pulling the weeds or picking the stones out and as you say now the way the world has gone we don't have time for that so is there a reticence to get back to that does it appear to be regression in a sense amongst the farming community I wonder we may not have a choice you know we may have to do it because you know we can't keep we cannot keep importing like we're exporting 90% of the milk that we're the, the milk we're producing is going abroad and as somebody said over the weekend uh, in, in the at the museum he said he was a journalist and he was saying look he said at the end of the day he said 90% of the milk we're producing isn't you know for consumption here in Ireland we're polluting our rivers people haven't been able to swim over the summer they can't swim in the rivers and all of 90% of what we're producing is going abroad, much of which is going in powdered milk to tell women in African Asia that, you know, breast milk isn't good enough and they should be using powdered milk. So he's like, there's a real disconnect in terms of the environmental damage we're doing and then the societal damage we're doing, you know, if, if, if we're promoting... Because it's so complicated. And, and yet it's so yeah. simple. Like the answer in a way is so simple. But Lisa, I wonder, like I'm not sure if I have faith that we can go back to where it would be economically from an environmental perspective, it would be the, 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 the better way to live. But can we go back there, I wonder? We've gone so far from the art conversation, by the way. I know, I know, I know. We'd have to go back to it. But um, I, I suppose the thing is, it's about vision and it's about what do we want. And I think, as, as somebody said to me recently, like nobody wants an environmental crisis. I certainly don't want to see my nieces and nephews growing up in a world that's more deteriorated than it is already. And I think what's really useful is if you think about that, I don't know, shifting baseline syndrome. Somebody said it to me there recently and I didn't know what it was, but it's basically that each generation is now growing up thinking that this is normal, that what we're seeing is normal. These massive green fields with nothing living in them except one type of grass, that that's become the normal. But 30, 40 years ago, that same field had 70 different species of grass and had loads of different insects. So so we're after doing exponentially so much more damage in the last 50 and 100 years than we ever did before since humans came on the planet. So we really need to stop and we need to think about, well, we, we do need to go back to some of the ways that we were doing things. And if we want to have a livable planet, that's the choice we have to make. Is all your art, to come back to the art, is it all consumed with food and, and the discussion that we've had, creative, I suppose, climate action, would we call it that? I suppose it wasn't, but it is becoming, it is becoming more of that. Um, I just feel like, you know, I finite energy. It's like, what do I feel is the best use of my energy? And it seems to be that ideas keep coming to me. You know, when, when we were talking about this exhibition, Bookville exhibition, um, somebody asked me, uh, what will a child's lunch look like in 2050? You know, what will, a child, what will children be eating? And all I could think of was this little child looking up at a parent saying, you know, in, in a little space suit type thing, a little boots, and having a, a vitamin pill and a, and a vial of some kind of little drink that had something nourishing in it, supposedly, saying to the parent, you know, 
did children really eat food grown in dirt? And thinking that that was disgusting. <laughs> you know, that, that that's where we're heading, you know, that, that food is going to be manufactured in factories. And already, even with the example I gave earlier of the BLT sandwich, Absolutely. like that's 43 ingredients. They're processed ingredients. And is that what we want? Maybe that is what people want, but I certainly wouldn't like it for the children of the future that they don't know what a real apple tastes like or a real tomato or they don't have the joy of going out picking those things and blackberries, you know. It's, it's, it just seems a shame. I just think food is so integral to who we are as humans that I, I think it's, it's a shame to think that that mightn't be the case in the future. It is. It certainly is. Well, listen, I can't wait to see your exhibition, Lisa. And where can people check out maybe some of the other projects that you've been involved in if they have an interest in any of the discussion that we've had just this evening? Absolutely. I'd love if people would check out uh, my website. So it's lisasingleton.com. That's L-I-S-A-F-I-N-G-L-E-T-O-N. And um, yeah, and and please, I'd, I'd love to hear people's feedback. I'd love if people would come along to the exhibition and uh, I will be around doing lots of workshops and community engagement over the while. And hopefully it will spark some interesting conversations. And I'm really looking forward to working with the children in Kilkenny to see their ideas because they'll be designing their own sandwiches and drawing their own sandwiches. And we'll be having lots of discussions about art and food. And sure, children are fantastic They're when it amazing. comes to imagination and Yes, <laughs> no better. And I think on, on your website, I saw the power of art is that it can bring the imagination to life. Our children, the, the best possible people to do that, I'm going to suggest that they are. Lisa, I have to finish by asking you, how did the BLT taste? That's a very good question. And nobody's ever asked me that. Do you know, I think my memory is not of it tasting anything particularly delicious. It was quite bland. And I'd say I was so distracted looking at the box. It probably is like, you know, a lot of things when you're hungry and tired, we eat it without really appreciating the taste of it. It wasn't a particularly memorable sandwich. No, but you know, the the sad thing is we've gotten used to that sort of plastic taste, if you like. And then sometimes when you're eating something so simple, like maybe a tomato from someone's garden, you're sort of, you stop in your tracks because it tastes delightfully different and we're just not used to it. It has been yeah. a pleasure. I can't wait to check out the sandwich story as part of Bookville. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Art Show on KCLR with Unanifal Downing with thanks to Kenny County Council Arts Office and Creative Ireland. You're very welcome back to the Art Show. Now, by the way, if any teachers out there are interested in attending the Sandwich Story, the exhibition, it's open for schools and the general public from October the 5th, which is Thursday until October the 18th. And if you want to bring your class, you do have to book in advance. So you can email deirdre.southie at kilkennycoco.ie. Pre-booking is essential. Now, it is an exciting evening because it is book club time and I'm only delighted to be joined in studio by my lovely book club members. I have Marissa Sheehan here and I have Kate Redmond, Ladies Falcha. Thanks, Una. Great to be here. It is great to have you. Now, let me see what... I have an extra mic on. Let me just see which one it is. This might take me a minute to work out. There she is. Okay. So our book ladies, well, actually, firstly, because you're both members of a real life book club, or at least you have been at some point in your lives, and I'm not. So what are the rules of book club, Marissa? Um, try and read the book, but not essential. <laughs> uh, meet up, um, have a bit of crack, pretend to speak about the book, and then gossip and... Uh, perhaps enjoy a glass of wine. <laughs> I think that yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that more, uh, Marissa. The kind of rules are, there are not many There are many no rules, rules in book clubs. Yeah. Now, I would have said definitely read the book, but I imagine life gets in the way and lots of people do rock up without having had it. 
uh, it tends to get through all of it but that is not the case tonight because we've all got the upper volume done haven't we and oh, we have yeah. read Strange Sally Diamond Liz Nugent's novel I'm going to start at the beginning which I'm told is a very good place to start ladies and I believe I haven't read any other Liz Nugent but I believe she is known for her killing her killer lines at the start of the book and I want to take you to Lying in Wait have either of you read that one? Yes, I think that was our first one. Was it? Yes. Okay, the yeah. very first one. Well, this was the opening line of that. My husband didn't mean to kill Annie Doyle, but the lying tramp deserved it. Who doesn't want to finish that yeah. book? Yeah. Isn't yeah. it amazing? Yeah. And similar, a really strong start to this one too. Marissa, what oh, did you think of it? Fascinating. Like anybody who's putting their father out in the rubbish because he said, just throw me out with the rubbish bins when I'm gone. It immediately pulls you in. Um, it's a great book. It's a great book club book because there's so many points of discussion and there's so many layers to it. There's so many things about nature versus nurture, all those big ones. Can we survive our youth? Can we go above it? You know, neurodivergence, all that. But it's still a good story. So I think that's the important bit, isn't it? It yeah. brings you with it all the yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you, Marissa. There were so many things I think that made me think because it's so unusual but at the same time it's a bloody good thriller yeah it is it is and I, I thought that was very unusual to have both of those things together um i certainly found because the character herself is so unusual she kind of makes you think about she i mean she is not social um she's no social skills but i know. think it's the fact that she has no filter so and it's written so well that you you don't for a second think it's in any way false. So she says what she means. She yeah, she doesn't do the small talk. Yeah. But she's she's more um, endearing because she of it. And you know she's a really reliable narrator as well, isn't she? Because she's so frank, because she's so literal. She doesn't try to disguise anything or dress it up. So you're absolutely confident that she's giving you the facts as she sees them, and she seems to see them, you know, pretty much as they are. I would say. And there's a real truth in that, isn't there? And there's kind of, I felt there was kind of comfort in it. Yes. You know. Except, guys, until you kind of get into the book and you go, actually, her view of reality and say her adoptive father and his dealing with her, how that's very much skewed. And I think it's very interesting then to compare that with her brother that comes in later in the book and his view of his father, who was a monster, really. But still that, that paternal loyalty sure, yeah but yeah, how did you think her her view of how her father had treated her was skewed in her adoptive father because say like the other characters in the book would have said no you need to be socialized more mm. you actually were being treated nearly as his experiment and but, he wanted to study you as opposed to let you be the person sure, yeah, you know yeah. but I, I actually quite kind of quite like the fact that there was no diagnosis in it. Yes. You know, I thought that was very unusual. Yes. You know, because mm -hmm. I suppose in the current day, the temptation is to say, oh, Sally Diamond is autistic, you know, but, you know, or, you know, on the spectrum. But I qu quite like the fact that you were just challenged by, well, maybe she's not. Maybe she just sees the world differently. And but that comes from her experience. It does come. And I think I actually heard Liz Nugent um, interviewed on the radio about this. And she wanted to create that character. There was a character in To Kill a Mockingbird, I think, who was totally reclusive. So she wanted somebody who's 
upbringing had made her thus. So she definitely wasn't on the spectrum. She wasn't autistic. She's yes, none of those yeah. things, which the father said, but we weren't entirely sure whether that was true or not. But Marissa, just to come back to your point, I thought there was a love, a beautiful love between that father. And he didn't do right by her without a doubt. But I think what what we're missing is the love that she fell from him. And I think she saw that as it was and it was quite nice. But perhaps her view of what love was and what that should look like was totally skewed by her absolutely abnormal early life. So um, I wonder, is she the best judge of that? Now, of course, I think her father loved her and I think we get lots of hints of that. But I think they're the layers of interest that go through it because... As well as that, I think Liz Nugent is great because she never writes characters in any of the books that I've read of hers that you automatically like or dislike. They're all like... They're much more brother, complex. They're much more complex. So the brother, Peter, he's hateful. Like what mm. he does is horrible. Oh, he's objectionable, yeah. But, but he's victim, so you have that sympathy. Victim, yeah. He's villain and victim. Yeah. Very nicely wrapped. In a way, I thought, because the parallel storyline is narrated by him... And it was more interesting in a lot of ways, wasn't it? Because you really want to know what happened. How did we get here? What happened to the father, to Connor? You really want that story, maybe a bit more than you want Sally's. Except yes, yeah. And, and it's, it's almost in two parts, isn't it? Because I thought the beginning was very much about her. Mm-hmm. And then chapter by chapter, it, it her backstory, the kind of thriller, that reveals itself as you go along, you know? And, and I thought... You know, that was very, very well written. It no, was. I guess, I guess that might be my one, it's not criticism, but that those kind of ploys of kind of two storylines, I think in any other person's hands, that might have been distracting. And again, maybe a slight negative, and I'd be really interested to see what you think. Is that entry and very quick exit of Peter at the end? Was that satisfying? Was that enough for us? Did it need to be? I, I, what do you think? You know, he came back into her life, but he exited so quickly. Yeah, it wasn't enough for me. And I thought, to be honest, when it started, I thought, oh my goodness, this is an Eleanor Oliphant. It's absolutely, mm-hmm. it, it, it very yes, much, yeah, I thought, reminded similar, me yeah. the character, the story. It didn't hold my interest the way Eleanor did. And for that very reason, where I said, for me, it got a little bit convoluted. It was kind of wrapped up a little bit too quickly and neatly. And I'd lost a little bit of credibility for me. Same with Mark, the character Mark. I just mm. thought, there was an awfully long introduction to finding out who he yeah. was and it lacked a bit of punch. Did you agree with that? Yeah, Kate? I do. I do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, she was brilliant, you know, certainly at, at her kind of depiction of um, Sally. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, I would have reservations about the plot. I suppose and how it worked out. And actually, do you know, in that same interview that I heard with Liz the interviewer asked her did you know had you all a very complicated plot Have you had you it all laid out and she said no I didn't know where it was going and I thought I believe you actually yeah, I very yeah. much believe yeah. you but, but having said that and I'm going to contradict myself completely now I also liked that it was left un, slightly unresolved for Sally and it wasn't that they all lived happily ever after like we still felt this woman is going to struggle with this for the rest of her life and she thought she could trust people and then she was betrayed by them. I thought that was really powerful at the end. Absolutely, because there was nothing finite. 
you know, and that's life, isn't it? You know, and there was no black and white. There was this huge grey area, you know, and I also love, there's very dark humour in it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and some of the ones I was thinking about, you know, because, I mean, she doesn't behave, you know, like you're normal, if that's, if for want of a better word, but I thought of the scene where she was at the father's funeral and she wore the sequined red berry <laughs> because he had said that's for special occasions. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And I thought, well, that's kind of great because yeah. it makes you think, you know, why do we wear black all the time, you know? But the so, image of her even, you know. Yeah. But the comedy, I thought, was so... It was so simple. There was a scene when she went into the post office and, and she pretends to be deaf to avoid social interaction. So Mrs. Sullivan, anyway, she says she ignores her because she's annoying her because she was an annoying little character. Anyway, as she's leaving the post office, Mrs. Sullivan says to somebody, the poor thing, I think the deafness comes and goes. You know? and, even, and even later on, when she realised that she wasn't deaf, she still spoke to her really loudly. Yes, yes, yes. You know, get, yes. So it's like there must be something still yeah. going on. We can tell ourselves that anything. really good. There was another scene where she was talking about, um, she was doing that thing about, you know, the phone, bye, bye, bye. Okay, bye, 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 yes. bye. But I thought she did it so well. Yes. And then, and Sally's verdict was very annoying. And just a really yeah. quick, accurate. Accurate, yes. yes. Or punchy. It's kind of uh, explaining her sexuality or her lack of interest in men. It's so like, this is what it is. Take it or leave it. And you can just imagine somebody going, what is she saying? What is she telling me? She's explaining that she's heterosexual. It was yes, just, it yes. was, it was yeah, at the party. And then there was a silence, of course, at that very moment. Yes, which yes. was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. oh, it was so, uh, but I think, I wonder, did she lose, as she socialised more, did her voice change, did you think? I think she learnt behaviour so that she she learnt and with her therapist, Tina, which was excellent as well. Like, no, no, Sally, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. And, and the I, list of things she cannot say. And yeah, she, these are the things. Yeah. Kind of, I'll add that to my list of things that I can't say. But I just thought it was a lovely evolution of her character. But then we were brought right back to reality at the end of going, yeah, that was fine, but look, that damaged a huge tragedy the, the, the backstory yeah, was you know back. the huge thing yeah. so she didn't she, it, it wasn't at all frivolous or it didn't it didn't go and they were fine at the end of it and she got over that and she was able to move of course she wasn't and I loved that about it that there was questions still yes. unanswered at yes. the yeah. end you know yeah. and, and I don't think a nice happy ending where she was integrated into the community and she had four lovely friends and maybe you know I don't think that would have done no, the book justice or the story no, no it wasn't it and wasn't what did you think of um, the second uh, kidnapping by Peter and the fact that he was so nice to her and that was so well written that like very well written and very unsettling I found that unsettling really yeah. the most unsettling part of it because it you had you had I'm not like my father. yes and he yeah. said that several times didn't he what yeah. was that character's name again was she um, Lydia was it Lydia Linda Lydia Libby, was she Lindy Libby was but, it Anyway, it was incredibly sad the way that she just gave up because she, there was no fight left in her. It was really sad, wasn't it? And that poignant image of when he had not wasn't locking her in anymore and she used to go back into the barn at night and close the door behind her because she knew no different. Yes, yeah. and, and yeah. he was it, was, it was, it was, it was a very chilling image that and the way that the relationship and then the baby was very, very sad. Yeah. It was a more difficult story, intriguing. But I was hoping for something that he would show that little bit of, I don't know, redemption. But it, it just it wasn't coming. In fact, it, it went quite the opposite way, and it was disappointing. Would we have liked that story to end? 
differently? Again, I think I think it needed to end the way it was because he's like who who really could survive that? I, I yeah, don't... I agree. Yeah, I, I yeah, and again, I liked the fact that you know, albeit your instinct would be, you know, it'd be lovely to have some redemption. But when you knew the whole backstory, you you thought, no, they were just surviving, just about. And wasn't very interesting the hints at, say, Connor's own upbringing and what led him to become like he was and that sort of sadness and that inevitability of how is it's going to keep repeating itself yeah. yes yes it's it's nobody knows any different mm. and i think i think that's brave of liz nugent to to end it like that and to ask all those questions yeah absolutely you know and that's why you'd go back and you'd read her again. Oh, you yeah. definitely would. Yeah. Ladies, hold your next thoughts because I'm going to take a short break and more. We might go into the characters a little bit and we're going to get a fabulous poem from Resty Sheehan before she leaves this studio just after the break. On KCLOR with Una Niefeldeinig with thanks to Kenny County Council Arts Office and Creative Ireland. Julia, thanks for waiting there because I'm back with a banger of a car and home insurance quote for you. Jules, my sis lives near you and the potheads are a nightmare. They just aren't. Why is it so hard to get a good deal on simple car or home insurance? Well, getting a quote from Ompost Insurance is never this hard. For car and home insurance that's a little more human, call 0818222222 or visit onpostinsurance.ie. You feel me on the potholes, Jules, yeah? Acceptance criteria, terms, conditions apply. One Direct Ireland Limited trading as Onpost Insurance is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. One Direct Ireland Limited is a wholly owned subsidiary of Onpost. Home insurance underwritten by Aviv Insurance Ireland DAC. Best prices online. TFI Local Link, your local bus service, keeping rural communities in Carlow and Kilkenny connected as part of the Transport for Ireland network. For service arrangements, visit transportforireland.ie. It all begins with a thrump as the needle nestles into a deep valley of vinyl. Sizzle and crackle turns into fizzle and scratch and the mesmerising rotations of pop and hiss Ah, the crackle of a vinyl record. Just one of the ordinary sounds rediscovered by Sean. Whatever sounds you've lost, our hearing experts could help you find them again. Search Specsavers Hearing. Welcome back. You are tuned to The Art Show and we were here discussing Strange Sally Diamond. So we've had a good old chat about the story and the major characters. Can we dive in, ladies, to some of the more minor characters that I found curious? There were two in particular that... I couldn't get my head around. One of them was Auntie Christine and the second was the doctor. Yeah. They, oh, who essentially was kind of looking out for her all the time. Yeah. Yes, and they drove the story a lot. But was there something a little bit lacking in the development of those characters? No, I think I think they were really useful characters to add balance. They They brought a kind of a normality to it. So Auntie Christine arrived on and kind of told about her husband and the normality of life and that her mother loved shopping. I thought it was a lovely counterbalance to the madness that had been her life. And even her kind of reaction to Sally was like, Sure, so they they were almost like a kind of a conduit to Sally. Yeah. Or, you know, a a comparison, I suppose. Mm. You know, because through them, I suppose you saw how unique and how different Sally was. I think so. I think they were really useful. And like you said, Una, the say her her mother's her adoptive mother's uh, business partner 
I love their practicality. Like, you can't be ringing us all the time. We're busy women. Yes, like, yes. Yeah, yeah. I love that because it was like, even though it should all be about you, Sally, because you've had such a weird up... It's not. Other but it's not. Lives. This is yeah. the reality of life yeah, yeah. day to day. Yeah. And, and they showed a little bit of intolerance for her and and her partner, was it Nadine, was that her name? Yeah. If you ever touch her again, you know, when she got a little bit physical yeah. with her. So they weren't up for Sally, wrap her up in the cotton wool no, by any stretch. And I loved when they said like, when she had attacked the girl got very angry and had kind of look still come to us for the Christmas because like even though you're a lunatic you're all lunatic yes, so come yes. on like, but they kind of left her hanging for a little bit they yeah. didn't tell her immediately yeah, come here yeah. we're going to come back in a moment with our maybe give it stars out of five uh, but before we do that I'm afraid we're going to run out of time and Marissa you're not leaving this studio without sharing with us some of your fabulous work because you are an incredibly talented poet not that you're going to tell us that but I know you are because you've won many awards and many plaudits and you've got a little something to share with us this evening so if you'd like to intro it for us um, okay, now please, uh, I'm no Liz Nugent, um, <laughs> so be tolerant. Um, I just picked one called Cooking Apples because it's that time of the year, it's autumnal, a lot of apples being picked around Carlo and Kilkenny. And this is about ageing because, um, <clears throat> not looking at anyone in particular, ladies, but um, <laughs> we're, we're of a certain age where I guess we've got to realise we're, um, we're not eaters anymore, let's put it like that. Cooking Apples. Tart, crumble, stewed apple. Cookers, big as bullocks, shouldering, bending boughs, full of earwig tunnels and pulp, pecked by the Morse code of crow and blackbird beaks. Bruised and bittered by age and rain, tainted by the seepings of briars, autumns, nettles, and the derelict house that birthed them in this Carlow orchard. The oldest Bramleys unclench easy, felled by the lightest of breezes. Eaters crunch and squeak in full mouths of teeth, their cores flying javelin-like from loud golf cars, huddles before games, breaks between exams, essential parts of five-a-days, contoured in taut apple skin. Strut your pips, blush pink, take big, hard, loud bites, be frivolous and flighty, filled with mad notions, because you too will soften and broaden, gain texture and flavour become an interesting cooking apple apple best under pastry with sugar and butter tart crumble stewed apple <gasps> I love it. Oh that is God. brilliant. You have to say that, girls. Marissa, yeah. it's fabulous. Although I do take exception, I think I'm absolutely an eater. Excuse me. It's contoured, you know, contoured. I, I'm assuming you get your inspiration from what's in front of you, be it a cooking apple, you're out walking. That's exactly where your inspiration comes. Yeah, I guess. Well, yeah, well, my life isn't that exciting. So it's sometimes just cooking apples where the inspiration comes from. But the imagery is phenomenal. And there's, there's, there's real beauty in that, isn't there, Kate? It's gorgeous. And you've started with nature and then you've brought it into kind of every day. You know, and yeah, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. It yeah, is. That's Liz Nugent. <laughs> no, it, no, but it was it was very nice, and it's very autumnal, as you say. Okay, so ladies, will we start this one? So let's go out of five. What are we going to give it? Oh, I would go four point five. Generous, okay. Uh, I'm going to give it four because I loved it. Excellent book, but just maybe because of that um, slight underdevelopment of some of the other major characters. But loved it, well worth the read. Go and get it and give it a go. 
Yeah, I think for me it's four as well. I couldn't give it under four, couldn't go to the four and a half because somewhere along the way it didn't quite deliver what it, it promised to at the being, I, I thought. But definitely I would go back to the other Liz Nugent, starting with the lying tramp. The she What's it called again? Uh, lying in wait. I'm definitely going to wait, yeah. go to that one next. <laughs> Ladies, we're back with our book club in three weeks' time and we're going to be doing uh, lessons in chemistry. So... Get reading. Thank you so much for coming in this evening. It's been absolutely lovely to have you. And we look forward to having you back in three weeks' time. Thanks, thanks a million. Thanks, thanks a million. Pleasure. And thanks a million for tuning our way this evening. It has been fab to have your company. Join us again next week where we will have lots of news from around and about Kilkenny of what is coming up. By the way, the Sondheim Festival is coming up in the Watergate Theatre this weekend, which looks to be really good. And there were a few other things that I wanted to mention, but I can't find my notes. So anyway, if you look around, you will definitely find lots to do. So until next week, I'll say salon. The Art Show on KCLR with Una Niefel-Deinig. With thanks to Kenny County Council Arts Office and Creative Ireland.